Welcome to Smith Memorial Online. We're glad you joined us today. We're located in Collinsville, Virginia. At Smith Memorial, our motto is simple, follow Jesus. We'd like to encourage you to check us out online, www.smithmemorialumc.com. There you can find out more information about us, opportunities to serve, and ways to support this ministry through giving. We pray that God would add blessing this day to the hearing and the doing of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, I give, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds to it or annuls it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offering. It does not say, and to offsprings, as many of us. As of many, but it says, and to your offspring, that is to one person, who is Christ My point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. So why then the law? It was added because of transgression. Until the offspring would come, to whom the promise had been made. It was ordained through angels by mediators. Now a mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ may be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you belong to Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. These are the words of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit, O God, on us who are gathered here this day. May we learn of your truths through the preaching 
the hearing and the receiving of your spirit through faith. Place the cross before me, let none see me but you and your grace alone. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have family members. It's always a good way to start a sermon, right? I have family members who won't let their children watch or read the best-selling and award-winning series, Harry Potter. Because it's filled with magic and witchcraft, they say. Honestly, I think that they won't let them watch or read Harry Potter because they're, af- they're afraid that your children might become one of those people. You know what I'm talking about. They might become one of those people that get dressed up, run in the fields with broomsticks between their legs, and play the imaginary game of Quidditch. Perhaps they are really just too afraid to share their true faith with the public. But no! That's not what they say. They say, we don't let our children watch Harry Potter because of the possible attacks that magic might have on their young Christian faith. But ironically, ironically, they they won't let them watch Harry Potter, but they will let them be involved in the biggest promoter of magic around. Sports. You will know exactly what I'm talking about if you have ever played sports or have been an avid fan of a sports team. I remember my football practice pants that had literally dried like cardboard to the point they could stand and walk by themselves if they needed because I was too afraid that if the washing machine was to get to them, that might wash the good juju off the season we were having. Football is filled with magic. Ask any Hokie fan who pulls out their keys on key third downs. Ask any player that taps the stone on their way out of the tunnel. Ask Stowe Belongia who will paint his face black and silver tonight in hopes that our church fantasy league won't draft his beloved Raiders. (laughs) Magic. Baseball is filled with magic. Baseball is the worst sport of all when it comes to the promotion of magic. Don't step on the foul lines coming in and off the field. Don't be that guy that says to the pitcher, hey, you've almost thrown a perfect game. Is there magic in sports, Brandon? There's a magical belief that by doing something outside of the sport itself, it will have a butterfly effect down the line. We call it superstition, but it's all just magic. Something somehow that you do will magically affect something else that's non-related. This is Paul's argument to the churches of Galatia in chapter 3, who have substituted the gospel that he came to preach with a law-centered gospel from false teachers. Who has bewitched you? Paul exclaims. As he is convinced that these foolish Galatians have come underneath of the curse of magic. A belief that something you do will grant you a desired outcome. They had substituted faith for superstition. 
That somehow by not changing your spiritual underwear, you will find favor with God. For Paul, as we have stated more than once, and we will continue to state, I promise you, over and over and over again throughout this series, nothing you do is of any benefit for your justification before God. This is God's doing for you. And once we get that, I promise, I'll stop. But for now, I'll keep going. So no, Paul argues against these false teachers and those foolish Galatians, obeying the law, becoming the best prayer at the table, becoming the smartest at your Bible study, lifting your holy hands in worship will not save you. In fact, it was those people that nailed God to a tree. And as a preacher I once admire, I admire once said, if that doesn't convince you and the law's inability to make you right before God, then perhaps the Holy Spirit should be a convincing exhibit B. The one thing I want to learn from you, Paul demands, is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? I like the way another translation of the Greek reads. Did you receive the Spirit because you observed the law or as a result of the proclamation that has the power to elicit faith? And the distinction between these two translations is very important. In the first, we are left with a picture of Paul's asking if the Spirit was received through something you did or something you believed. But there's a problem there. Both of which have the main character as you. Doing and believing require the thought-filled action of someone capable of doing and believing the right thing. And as we've talked about over and over again, you all are covered in sin. God help you if you're left to you to make that choice. In contrast, Paul seems to be arguing both here and in his other letters that both spirit and faith are not received as a product of what you have done, but are gifts that come from the outside. They come from God. Spirit and faith come from a God who elicit, who draws out, who instills, who brings forth faith through the hearing each and every week of the good news. This is why it's so important that you come to church because we are creatures hardwired to be doing something all the time, but we must come week after week to be reminded of something that's counter to who we are, to be reminded that the Holy Spirit and faith are granted not by what you have done, not by what we have done, but they are granted by trusting in the promises that all has been done by Christ for us, period. So Paul's turning to the gift of the Spirit to make his case for the gospel is because these false teachers have began to teach through worship that the law-observant practices of Scripture, 
is the means by which one can be assured a steady supply of the Spirit. The more you practice Scripture, the more you do what Scripture says, the more you'll be able to receive that steady supply. Paul calls that out and says, nonsense. You see, in our churches today, particularly in our churches that are like ours, we assume because we don't always clap our hands on beat, right? We assume because we don't run up and down the aisles. We assume because we don't find ourselves in some sort of unexplainable emotional episode that we are a church that is devoid of the Spirit. And hence, we must therefore do something or be something in order to have it. We must clap harder. We need to go to class to learn how to clap on beat, guys, so that we can be a Spirit-filled church. Paul says, nonsense. You just keep right along clapping off beat because it doesn't really matter. Because the Spirit is not any of those things. The Spirit is not an emotion. The Spirit is not some subjective experience related solely to an individual. The Spirit is not granted based on something that you do. So do not tell yourselves that you don't have the Spirit. Because the Spirit is not subjective, it's objective. It's not emotional, it's historical. The Spirit is a gift. The Spirit was and always will be a person. Jesus Christ who is given through the proclamation of the gospel that has the power to draw out faith. This is why the early church, through hearing the word proclaimed by Peter on the day of Pentecost, that 3,000 were added to the number and baptized. Why? Because they heard of a gospel that had the power to elicit faith. They had the Spirit. This is why through Philip proclaiming to the Ethiopian eunuch that, that right then and there he receives the Spirit and was baptized. Why? Because he heard the gospel that had the power to elicit faith. It is why Cornelius, when he was with Peter, through, when Peter was sharing the gospel, he witnesses the Spirit at work in Cornelius and him and his family were baptized because they heard the power of a gospel that has the power to elicit faith. It's Paul proclaiming to the churches in Galatia, remember how you first received the Spirit. Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit through doing the law? or by trusting in the promises that they had heard. You see, Paul is asking, when he speaks about the Spirit, he's asking about sin and pardon, not hillsong and tongues. 
Paul echoes what Jesus tells us through St. John's Gospel, that the Spirit, when He comes, will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in Me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see Me no longer, about judgment because the ruler of this world that we give way too much credit to has already been condemned. You see, when the Spirit comes, He comes not to us as emotion. He comes just as Christ did to mediate God's work in our lives through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Anything counter to that work of the Spirit is garbage. The Spirit is not something different than God. It is Jesus promising that I am sending you one exactly like me. So just because we don't clap on time or run up and down the aisles, don't sell yourself short by not having the Spirit. Because Paul is forcing them and us to ask the question, remember, what was it that led to your conversion? Was it something you did? Or was it something you heard was done for you? Was it something that you devised in your mind and thought, hey, this is something that sounds good to me? Or was it something that you received from outside of you? The Spirit is not emotion. It's a person. You see, this is the principle that Wesley always taught of provenient grace. Nowhere in our doctrine of the Spirit do we recount the emotional experience as an adequate sign of God's provision in our lives. Instead, we insist that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, convicting you and convincing you of what? Your sin. The fact that you can look into the mirror and be honest with yourself, that you are one who is a sinner and stands in need of grace, the fact that you can turn on a TV or read a newspaper clipping or read a tweet and you can call racism, sexism, classism as sin, that is all the proof that you need that the Spirit is at work within you. Don't be confused. You see, the realization of sin that you can call sin, sin when you see it, that you can call yourself sinner when you look in the mirror is something that you had to receive. Because the realization of sin is not something that comes naturally to a people marked and mired by it. Sin is something revealed to us by Christ in the Spirit. Unless you think that the Spirit is nothing more than the pessimistic Eeyore raining down on you a word about your sin. The author Phyllis Tickle writes, hearing a word about sin for a Christian is always good news. Which you see, because when we hear about our sinful state, we simultaneously hear that the gospel of Christ is about doing what we could not do for ourselves. You see, the sinner knows not that they live in sin. But for the one gifted with the Spirit through faith receives their sin as good news. 
Because it comes from the one who took it away. This is what we call justification. Our realization that through Christ we have been justified before God. Not by something that we have done, but through what Christ has done for us. It's all gift. Something that was created that wasn't there before. So as you see in the title of my sermon, it's not your faith. It's not your spirit. It's not even your righteousness. Because all of those things are already marked and mired by sin. Paul says it's Christ that has been given to you. This is why Paul turns to Abraham as his case study. He wants to know, was Abraham, who came hundreds of years before the giving of the law, justified by the works of the law that came after him, or was he justified through trusting in God? For Paul, the answer is clear. By trusting in what God has done and the promises set before him, righteousness was gifted or reckoned to him by faith. Spirit, faith, righteousness. These are not words in which our doing actuates their effectiveness in our lives. These words, spirit, faith, righteousness, are all words pertaining to the gospel. These are gifts to be over which we give thanks. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.